Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. It never dawned on me how much walking I used to do until I bought a house in the suburbs. Like when I'd say, I'm going for coffee, of course I was walking, but now it's like three miles and no latte's worth that. I find myself inviting people on walks with me like it's a scheduled activity. This morning, my neighbor asked me what I'm doing and I actually said, I'm going for a walk with Nancy. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Ed Ward and Nate talk about the birth of reggae and the early 70s funk explosion. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, we have the pleasure of welcoming back Ed Ward, the author of The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock. Ed, welcome back. Hi, hello there. And so today we're going to discuss Chapter 6, which you titled, I Am the Song That My Enemy Sings. What's the title about? Well, it's actually a, um, a record by a guy named Joe Higgs, who is a fairly obscure reggae and ska artist who um, released several, uh, several versions of that record but um has to do with the fact that the first time I ever called anybody in Jamaica, Joe Higgs picked up the phone and told me he was the guy that taught Bob Marley how to write songs, which I went, you know, uh-huh, sure, yeah, right. <laughs> but it's true. He taught a lot of people. Uh, his house 
was a gathering point for young musicians in Kingston. And and what motivated your decision to start this chapter with a pretty long section on Jamaican music? What's going on in Jamaica that's worth such a long uh, side, sidebar? Well, Jamaica has at this point taken um, American rhythm and blues and kind of transmogrified it by the fact that they couldn't really play it correctly. They had a clear channel station that came in from uh, New Orleans. And so a lot of the um, New Orleans second line hits um, became Jamaican hits too. I mean, the biggest crowd ever at the Kingston airport was when Fats Domino visited. And, and um, it, that was only exceeded when Haile Selassie visited years later. And that's an interesting blend of influences, Rasta plus uh, Nola Swing. Well, there, there's um, there's another one too, which which is um, a Memphis musician called Roscoe Gordon, who is famous for having a dancing chicken that uh, performed on his piano when he played it. He always liked having a, a chicken as part of his act because if he didn't get paid, he could always eat the chicken. <laughs> but the chicken didn't translate yeah, but, to Jamaica, but the music did. Well, Roscoe Gordon was like not a great musician. He um, he had a weird sense of rhythm, and that translated pretty much one for one into ska. He was a huge, huge uh, favorite down in Jamaica, and he's almost unknown in the United States. And, and you started the chapter out with a discussion of two very different record label executives getting involved in the scene in Jamaica. One of them is the American that we've talked about a lot in this series, Ahmet Erdogan of Atlantic Records. The other one is a newcomer to this story, at least as far as, and we might have brought him up actually when we talked about uh, Spencer Davis Group and Traffic, but Chris Blackwell, of first Blue Beat Records and then Island Records from England makes a big impact with his uh, promotion of Jamaican musicians. Ahmet Erdogan, not so much. Well, Chris is um, from a very prominent white Jamaican family. Cross and Blackwell preserves, you know, for your toast in the morning. One of the dominant brands of confection in England. And so that's that's where he got his money and where he got his background in Jamaican music from. He, he moved to London. Um, I, I don't know whether to work for Cross and Blackwell or, or what, but he soon took, uh, wound up running a record label, Island, to uh, record members of the Jamaican diaspora in uh, in Great Britain. And before he starts Island, he has some pretty big hits uh, on his label, Blue Beat, with an artist named Millie Small in a song called My Boy Lollipop, which broke both yeah. in the States and in the UK. Yeah, and, and part of it was the, the rhythmic, uh, that was a, a classic ska record, and it was, it was a, um, the, the rhythmic background of that was so different that it worked in, um, as, as a novelty record in the American rhythm and blues charts. And Erdogan gets wind of 
what's going on in Jamaica during the 1964 World's Fair and invest a fair bit of money, records apparently a lost album's worth of sessions with Jamaican artists, does put out an album uh, on one artist which attempts to check into the dance craze scene that's still going on with an album called Do the Ska, but it doesn't, it doesn't come together for Atlantic. Why do you think that effort failed? Well, part of it is that um, American blacks, people from the South, are um, historically disliked West Indian immigrants. Um, they talk funny and they had weird religious ideas and uh, they, they just weren't like American blacks and um, very much disliked by people who grew up in the South. And so, Atlantic, and you think Atlantic tried to market it through those traditional R and B channels, and it just didn't click. Well, Atlantic was a traditional R and B label. I think I think Ahmed saw money in the uh, the Jamaican, I don't know, the, the tourist industry and so forth. He was probably looking for ways to cross fertilize a dance craze and. Uh, other ways of making money. And and then after this sort of brief discussion of, of Ska's commercial successes and failures in the mid-60s, you go back to Jamaica and you talk about some of the unique features of what was going on in Jamaican music. And there's these things called sound systems. Explain what's going on with that. Well, Jamaicans usually couldn't afford radios and they certainly couldn't afford stereos. But if uh, an entrepreneur built giant speakers and could get an amplifier and, um, you know, some records to play on the turntables, two turntables, and maybe a guy standing up to act as the front for the system, um, they could rent space behind bars and uh, what were called the lawns. And so um, they would set up, a sound system would set up, or two of them, and they would have duels, you know, who had the best records, who had the, the coolest fans, you know, the, the dancing fans who could dance better than anybody else and who set trends in terms of new dances. It was, um, you know, it was, it's a small island, and uh, fans came and went very, very quickly. So the sound systems helped give birth to them and helped um, come up with, you know, things that, that changed the scene, that, that they kept, kept the scene going through innovation. And and there's two roles with the sound system that, that American music fans will be familiar with later under different terms, but there's, there's a selector and then there's a Toastmaster, which is pretty much analogous to what we would call a DJ and an MC. Right. Um, the, the, the toasters came later. They um, improvising rhythmic patterns uh, over the music. At first, they were just making noises. They were like there was... Um, that was that was something they did into a microphone, and um, it was considered a cool thing. But then they started improvising rhymes and stuff, and then 
somebody got the, the brilliant idea of um, recording them as as artists, even though they weren't singing, they were just talking. So you have you Roy uh, talking over a not very big hit called "I'm Going to Wear You to the Dance Tonight," and that just erupted into DJ fever. And and they would also put out things called dubs on the B sides of records, which was sort of a perfect platform for people to rap over or toast over. Well, nobody was going to go. I mean, nobody's going to go to the bother of recording two distinct songs on one forty-five. You know, you just take the the instrumental track and press that into the B side, and um, you know, you, you you didn't have to worry about paying anybody twice or. You know, it's just you could just jam out a, a record and hope that it was a hit. And so the the B sides, known as versions, were what the DJs rapped over. And let's hear a little bit. This is Prince Buster doing a song called Judge Dread from 1966. Court is in session. Will you please stand? First, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Judge Hundred Years. Some people call me Judge Dredd. And that was Prince Buster's Judge Dredd. Tell us a little bit about Prince Buster and his role at Studio One. Well, Prince Buster. Um, owned a radio repair shop on Orange Street, which was a street in Kingston. And um, he also built speaker enclosures. I mean, it was a one-stop shop if you were into hi-fi and music and radios and stuff. So um, he, he became a star by toasting in front of the... Um, one of the sound systems, the, the big sounds. And um, he became, you know, a star much like singers would be because singers never performed this stuff live. Singers were just on, on, on records, but the DJ could work a lawn where, his, uh, the, the, where the sound that he was tied to was playing and provide them a little relief from just one record after another. So he he actually got big enough that uh, he had a bunch of hits in Jamaica, and for some reason RCA probably thinking about Harry Belafonte and, and um, Calypso and everything. They figured he might be the next big thing, so they signed him up. And he he would be talking over ska records, and and he had a minor hit called The Ten Commandments of Man as given to woman by Prince Buster. <laughs> and then the answer record that he recorded himself with women's re response to that. And so this stuff doesn't really click in the States, but it, it finds a, a growing audience in the UK, not only because there's a strong base of Jamaican immigrants there, but there's a subculture in the white community that emerges in the late 60s that's really drawn to the sound. Tell us a little bit about the nascent skinhead movement in the UK. Well, I, I honestly have always wondered why the skinheads, who were pretty violent racists, were so attracted 
to black people's popular music when one of their big deals was getting drunk and beating up Pakistanis. Um, it really made no sense, but they did form a large enough number of fans that it was possible for all these ska and blue beat records to sell better than, you know, they would have if they were just going to a black community. And sometimes they crossed over and they crossed over onto uh, BBC. And one of those artists was Desmond Decker, who had uh, an out of left field hit in both the UK and the States. It actually crossed over and made the top 10 in the States. And that's the song Israelites. Tell us a little bit about Desmond Decker, where he came from and how he broke through. Well, Desmond Decker was a, you know, he, he was just a, a guy in, in the um, in the ghetto like everybody else. But um, he had this real knack for writing amazing songs. And um, he, uh, he put out a record that uh, did pretty well in the UK. And for some reason, he uh, toured the UK. And that really, really boosted sales of his record. And since American record labels were, you know, always looking to England for the next big thing, they saw this and Uni, which was a, a kind of pop-oriented subsidiary of MCA, um, put out an album of his produced by Leslie Kong, who was one of the greatest uh, Jamaican producers of all time, died very, very young. And... Uh, so yeah, Israelites was was his big hit. It, it did pretty well in the United States. Probably the the highest topping actual Jamaican record uh, at that time. And the follow up, the follow up was unfortunately titled and and rumors that the title it mech. M-E-K, it mech, uh, was uh, rumored to mean uh, F-U in Turkish. Yeah, which is not true, and certainly Ahmed Erdogan could have told them that, but he wasn't into helping other labels at that point. So, um, yeah, and Itmec is is a is a even better record in some ways than Israelites. It's got a um, a better structure and is it's a little more I don't know it's it's a little catchier I think, but. Um, it it died on the vine, and the only the only other hit he had was one that um, was recorded by another artist, Jimmy Cliff, who um, had a hit with "You Can Make It If You Really Want." And and let's hear that. Let's hear Jimmy Cliff's version of "You Can Get It If You Really Want It." You can get it. succeed at last mm -hmm. And that was Jimmy Cliff covering Desmond Decker's song uh, You Can Get It If You Really Want It which flopped or wasn't even a single for Decker but was a 
fairly big hit for Jimmy Cliff. And Cliff is somebody that you had mentioned in the text going back to 1964. He was having hits around the same time as Millie Small was hitting with My Boy Lollipop when he was a teenager. And he rides out the Scar Wave and emerges sort of unlikely as a as a leader in the emerging reggae scene, or at least a popularizer of this new nascent sound yeah. called reggae. He was he was selected by a um, a white Jamaican filmmaker named Perry Hensel to star in his movie, um, which became titled "The Harder They Come," but um, it was based on a on a gangster um, who had run around Jamaica earlier in the century called Rigan or Rigen, which is apparently a corruption of the word raging. Hmm. Uh, he was he was a guy, he had guns, you know, all, all things that appealed to uh, to Jamaican sensibilities of, of rebellion. So, uh, yeah, J- Jimmy Cliff was the star, but there are also really amazing um, parts of that film. You see the Maytals in the studio recording Pressure Drop, one of their great hits. And, uh, you know, the, the, the music is pretty much nonstop on the soundtrack, plus ganja, lots and lots and lots of ganja, which <laughs> was a, a really smart move on somebody's part to uh, release it in the United States. I saw the world premiere in San Francisco, and there's a scene where a couple of Rosses are choking up on a big chillum, and the, the, um, this one Ross goes... <sighs> And every time he takes a deep breath, people in the audience are going, ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and you also mentioned a trio of, of very poor street youngsters, some of them country, from the country, that have been hanging around Studio One for quite a while, forming a harmony group originally called the Wailing Whalers, and eventually down to just the Whalers. But Bob Marley, Bunny Whaler, and Peter Tosh put together a combo and Chris Blackwell, who's done well licensing Leslie, Leslie Kong's productions decides to put out an album in the States called catch a fire and really bet big on reggae. How does that go? Well, it didn't go all that well because he marketed it to a rock audience instead of a rhythm and blues audience. I think he, he knew he wasn't going to get anywhere with black Americans. So he, um, decided that, you know, the connection with pot and rebellion, that, that fit in well with what American youth was interested in doing. But um, it, it really, it didn't work. And, and so he started concentrating on marketing them to, um, to black audiences. And that's what finally did work. But unfortunately, just a couple of weeks before Marley died, yeah, it took a while, but the Whalers did put a band together and tour the UK with Traffic and the Muscle Soul Swampers, whom we've discussed before, who then bring back some of the rhythmic tricks that they learn uh, and, and record them with Stax Records, of all people. Yeah, it was, um, well, that, that was I'll, I'll Take You There, which is pretty much a, a reggae track, but it was the Staples Singers, and, and they were an established act and so people bought it but uh, yeah they, they definitely there's um david hood the bass player you can hear mavis saying play it little david you know because 
he was doing a, a reggae bass solo in the middle of the song. And that's a good segue to what makes up the rest of the chapter, which is African-American music in right around the turn of the decade from 69 to 70. And you said part of the reason reggae couldn't break through was just there was so much good stuff coming out in America, and there's suddenly a new racist wall, a segregation wall goes up on FM radio. How did that happen? Well, it was fairly simple. I mean, there was a large component of the, I don't know, hip rock uh, market that was not going to welcome black music in. They'd apparently forgotten where it all come from. And so, um, you know, who cares? It was, it was on a, it existed on other radio stations, not the hip radio stations. I mean, musicians didn't feel this way, but um, it was it was a thing for uh, for the white kids, and so they um, they pretty much ignored what was going on on that end of things. But there's so much going on, and and you start with Curtis Curtis Mayfield, and tell us a little bit about what Curtis Mayfield had been up to through the late 60s and into this period, both with the Impressions and as a solo artist? Well, Curtis Mayfield was a gospel guy, pretty much down to his toenails. He, 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 he didn't want to perform gospel music, but the, some of the concepts and, and um, some, some of the, I don't know, some, some of the tropes of, of gospel music were always present in what he was doing. Um, the, the impression started out as a vehicle, not for Mayfield, but for uh, Jerry Butler. But he was soon separated from the group and given another career at Mercury Records. And um, so Curtis just continued as, as the leader of this, um, of this, this group and, and, he played a guitar in, in a in a very interestingly gospel-like manner, which was completely different from the the blues, you know, solo forward thing. Um, Curtis's guitar worked around the melody line, and uh, he uh, it was never a solo instrument, but it was always there. So that that's you hear something in in a in a song like you know. Move on up, or or uh, um, people get ready. People get ready is a gospel song, you know. Just like Sam Cooke says, "A change, change is going to come." They're, they're gospel songs written for a secular audience. And let's hear a little bit of Curtis Mayfield's "Move On Up." Curtis Mayfield's Move On Up, which was part of his uh, very successful emergence as a solo artist after he left the Impressions, and they continued to have hits for several years. But multiple other soul artists are still going on. Now, we talked about Otis Redding's tragic death in late 67, and Memphis Soul continues to produce some really fascinating artists, but they're not on Stax Records. People like James Carr, James Gove, and others 
are doing great stuff, but it's not on Stacks. What's the deal with that? Well, Stacks was having terrible problems. Well, to begin with, the uh, assassination of Martin Luther King happened in Memphis, and it happened at the Lorraine Motel, which was kind of like the office away from the office for Stacks. I mean, Steve Cropper remembers writing big hit songs in, in the coffee shop at Lorraine. And now, you know, here, here the, the great idol of, of black people, Martin Luther King, was shot dead there by a, a crazed assassin. So uh, things that Stacks kind of heated up, the fact that it was integrated was not, um, not of any interest to the people who were interested in taking taking vengeance for Martin's death. So um, other other labels in town got to be the beneficiary of that. There was um, Goldwax Records, um, which is where James Carr recorded. There, there was High Records, which started out as a sort of country label, uh, started by a, a guy named Joe Quovey. And um, so new ways of presenting Memphis music, Memphis rhythm and blues came to the fore. And the guy named Willie Mitchell at High Records uh, had already met, you discussed in a previous chapter, I don't think we talked about it on the show, but he met a somewhat promising young singer named Al Green. And right around this time, Al Green comes back and they start a pretty successful string of collaborations. Yeah, Al Green had had a, a hit called Backup Train, and uh, he was uh, on a show with Willie Mitchell and his band, and uh, they got to talking, and Mitchell told him, you know, if you ever come down to Memphis, young man, I'll uh, make a star out of you, and then, of course, promptly forgot about it, but, you know, he, he was impressed with the way Al was singing. One day there's a knock on his door, and here's Al Green like, hi, I came to Memphis. and <laughs> Let's get to work. I don't have much time. So Willie Mitchell, never averse to uh, making a star, went into the studio with him, and, and uh, he had a whole new sound of using his band. He had a, a great band, the Hodges Brothers, and also um, Al Jackson Jr., who was the house drummer for Stax, uh, played on a lot of those early high records. He'd also had a, a woman um, named Ann Peebles, but um, she was not a, a very dependable artist. She um, suffered from odd mental problems and sometimes didn't show up in the studio, let alone on stages. So um, here, here was a, a guy, Al, Al Green was a guy that people felt they could trust. I mean, also, you know, uh, James Carr was another erratic kind of guy. As for James Govan, I don't know much about why he didn't make it. He, he was uh, kind of like a, a, a favor, favorite of the, um, of the American sound recording um, studio, and he was also a great 
interpreter Bob Dylan, which I can't think of any other um, rhythm and blues artist who was that consistently good singing Dylan songs. Yeah, Govan's one of those guys that didn't click at the time, and then uh, you know there were a lot of CD reissues in the '90s and the knots that got a lot of attention from you know geeks like us that are into that kind of stuff. And and he's definitely somebody who deserved more attention at the time, and his his music is a real treat to listen to. But meanwhile, for many years he was a star in Italy because there's a soul festival there in a town called Pori. And uh, he was the he was the big star at each year's Pori Jazz uh, Soul Festival, and then he'd go back to um, Memphis and play in copy band bars around uh, around Bill Street. Uh, <laughs> he, he died ago, uh, completely unknown except in Italy. Uh, yeah, it's so weird. We had that phenomenon in Austin with the infamous big in Belgium uh, artists who are playing festivals in Europe and, and playing small clubs here. But meanwhile, Stax survives their really traumatic break with Atlantic Records, which not only cost them Sam and Dave, but all their master tapes up to that point in 66 when the split happened. But Al Bell comes in, becomes a first a PR man for Stax, then a manager, then a co-owner, and he pull some audacious moves, get some corporate funding from Gulf and Western, and put together a whole convention of Stax Records, and they put out something like 40 albums at once, and one of these was an album by Isaac Hayes, who up to this point had been a songwriter and producer along with David Porter writing so many of the great Sam and Dave hits, but he puts out this really eccentric album with covers of Jimmy Webb songs that are best known in Glenn Campbell versions, and really stretches out and, and expands the sound with lots of strings and uh, it's just crazy but it's a it's the hit that saves stacks right and it, the original version of it took up a whole side of, of an album you know it was like 20 minutes of Isaac Hayes kind of muttering and talking his way through uh, by the time I get to Phoenix it was a record like nobody had ever made before, let alone in, in soul music. But he really did control his image brilliantly, and um, performing wasn't that big a deal. All he had to get out, do was get up on stage and recite lyrics. <laughs> and and he pulled it off brilliantly. Has multiple platinum albums. Does the soundtrack to Shaft? I think we'll talk about it in another episode. And and headlines at Watt Stacks, which is basically African American Woodstock. It's this enormous festival that Stack puts on in L.A. single handedly. One record label, dozens of artists, hundreds of thousands, or at least a hundred thousand fans show up. Yeah, it was it was a way of saying you know. We're not dead yet, and hey, there's a lot of artists that aren't getting played on the radio here that you might um, actually like to tell them they should play. And uh, it was a it was a real big deal. I mean, everybody who went there has very happy memories of the event. There was no violence. There was no, you know, police action. Nothing. It was just a a wonderful afternoon filled with stars. 
Yeah, and, and magnificent, and and sets Al Al Bell up and stacks up to to roar into the seventies. Meanwhile, the other great African American label, Motown, is going through some big changes. First, let's talk about Norman Whitfield and the Temptations and what was going on there. Whitfield was, uh, you know, he he was a producer. He uh, who had this hustle gene in his makeup. And um, he had some ideas about ways to change the um, the backing tracks at Motown. He used to go down to the um, 20 Grand Club, which was a, a big R&B club in, in uh, Detroit. And um, he'd go down there with a regular old seven-inch reel-to-reel uh, tape recorder and set it up on the table and record acts who were playing there. Um, George Clinton was not happy about this because the Parliaments, his uh, his group was were frequent performers at the Twenty Grand, as was his rock band, uh, Funkadelic, and and um, they were really doing some innovative stuff. And Whitfield got it and, and uh, went back to the home of the hits and played played what he had recorded for the. Um, for the Funk Brothers, the house band, and said, you know, we ought to think about moving in this direction. And uh, when the uh, Temptations came up to do their next sessions, that's what happened. Yeah, and real off just an amazing string of hits. Papa was a Rolling Stone, Cloud Nine, so many uh, great stuff, and, and updates the Motown sound for the psychedelic era. And for the current radio listeners too because you know teenagers teenagers don't want to listen to the exact same stuff their parents listen to and and that was pretty much what was available on black radio at that point and then suddenly along comes Whitfield and this well he, he was influenced not only by Clinton but by um, Sly Stone out in San Francisco who was struggling to, um, he was struggling with a, a label that didn't really know how to promote black music. Um, and, uh, but he was, he was making innovative records and I'm sure Whitfield paid a lot of attention to that. And, and he, he, you know, combined that as, as in, in his songwriting for the Temptations. And, and we'll get back to Sly Stone and, and George Clinton in a minute, but let's talk about some more Motown artists. There's a couple of guys who were mainstays of the Motown factory system in the 60s who in very different ways break off with Barry Gordy and plant their own stake. How did Marvin Gaye do it? What, what does Marvin Gaye do to break free from his brother-in-law? Well, he wasn't real happy with his marriage, and he also owed them a, a new record and he'd been you know he'd been listening to protest music he'd been listening to people's ideas you know he had friends who were you know black panthers and uh, were on the uh, detroit lions football team they used to hang with and they, they talked about a whole lot of different stuff so he wound up writing a bunch of songs that became a song cycle and then he uh, called the Folk Brothers and said, I'm ready to record my new album. And he kind of walked them through the songs. And then he recorded the whole album in a day called What's Going On. And James Jamerson, the bass player in the Folk Brothers, went home and told his wife that he had 
just recorded a masterpiece, which was something Jameson knew a little bit about. <laughs> yes, indeed. That's if if James Jamerson says I just did something remarkable, you better pay attention. And certainly, what's going on was remarkable. But Gordy still didn't even want to release it. I mean, he had to fight to get it released, and then it turns into a left field hit. Well, yeah, it wasn't that left field when you consider everything that was coming out. But it was left field because it had the might of Motown behind it. You know, it, Motown was a well-established label, and that was part of what Gordy was afraid of. This wasn't his formula. It was Marvin's formula. And, and that irritated him, certainly. And another one of, his, of Gordy's mainstays through the 60s, Little Stevie Wonder. He's not little anymore. And he's got an excellent lawyer named Jonathan Vigoda, and he turns 21, and he's got a lot of options. How does it come around that he ends up staying with Motown, but under very different terms? Well, Vigoda went and um, negotiated him a, uh, a deal. He, he knew that he was pretty much essential to Motown, which was losing a lot of its stars, or the stars were doing different things than they had been. And so Stevie Wonder was, he was still writing records, you know, writing hits for um, other Motown people, both himself and in combination with other writers. Um, he was valuable and, and um, Gordy didn't want to lose him. So he, uh, he negotiated a, a, a deal whereby he would own his own publishing, which was unheard of. Nobody else in Motown owned their own publishing. And um, that he would uh, be allowed to record what he wanted. And then he moved to New York, which was not Detroit. And he, and he hooks up with two guys from Toronto who are synthesizer kings. Right. They, they, were, they had taken over one of the uh, rooms at Electric Ladyland Studios, Jimi Hendrix's um, recording studio, and they had um, they'd hooked together a bunch of Moog synthesizers very early. You know, back these days, you can buy synthesizers where you can play as many notes as you want to um, at once, you know, play chords and other, other things like that. But back when Moog started making their, uh, their synthesizers, they, they were monophonic. You could only play one note at a time. And if you wanted to make a chord, you had to do some overdubs. So these guys figured out a way to hook a bunch of monophonic synthesizers together so that they could be played from one keyboard. And they called it Tonto, uh, which I'm not, now I can't remember what it stand for stood for, but um, it was uh, it was a, a synthesizer in a box. There was one one keyboard sits Stevie in front of it, and um, he could experiment to his heart's content, and he did. And and yeah, it's called Tonto. Stood for the original New Timbrel Orchestra, and the guys were Malcolm Cecil and Robert Margulaf. And yeah, and Stevie Wonder grabs hold of this new technology and runs with it for a string of brilliant albums um, that goes up against anybody's best work. I mean, the Beatles, the Stones, Prince, Dylan, anybody. You know, Stevie put together this incredible run of albums through the early '70s up into the mid '70s. 
that's just unmatched. But meanwhile, the Empire Strikes Back, Barry Gordy gets a hold of another young genius and uh, puts together a new songwriting team called The Corporation because he's not going to have another Holland Dozier Holland situation where he gets what he calls backroom superstars whose names are on all the labels. What do they do with the Jackson 5? Well, the Jackson 5 was a, a group that was assembled by a guy named Joe Jackson. It was his, his sons. And um, he had wanted a, a music career, but he was frustrated because he wasn't all that good at performing or songwriting. So instead, he, he had the boys be his, his proxies. And um, Michael was, was a... He was a real prodigy. He, he was able to not only sing but dance, and that was that was something that made people crazy. When he would get up in front of the um, in front of the group and and dance, he, he used to watch James Brown to learn moves, you know, because he he knew he was good at it. And and they succeed brilliantly, and and sort of achieve a bubblegum R&B fusion that was massive, massive in the early 70s. Meanwhile, Hall and Dozier Holland have resolved their lawsuits and gone out on their own, and they strike a chord and have several hits. Yeah, they had, they had a couple of uh, labels that they made. There was Invictus, and uh, there, there was um, uh, the one that was with Buddha over the... Uh, Hot Wax, I uh, think. And they were, the two labels were different in, in that Invictus was more a, a progressive label and Hot Wax was more of a pop label. You know, they, they had the Honeycone and uh, Laura Lee and um, groups like that on, on Hot Wax. And um, Invictus, like I said, they, they had Frida Payne, they had the, um, the main ingredient, they had um, Funkadelic. Well, they had Parliament. Mm -hmm. Funkadelic was on Westbound. I'm sorry, you're right. They had the, the Parliaments, but they had, yeah, they, they called it Parliament. And, and, and Clinton hedges his bets. He's got Parliament, which is, you know, he lost the rights to the name The Parliaments to one record label, so he chops off the S puts out uh, a landmark psychedelic funk album called Osmium on Invictus with Parliament, but then signs basically the same group to Westbound and cuts several records as Funkadelic. How does that go over? Well, that, that was George thinking in terms of modules, you know. By the time it was all over, he also signed The Brides of Funkenstein and, and The Horny Horns to Atlantic. He figured that they were... Although, if you paid money to go to a, a show, you would see them all on stage at the same time, but he figured they were separate acts. They just happened to be there all playing together, so he was able to carve up his empire that way. His bass player, um, Bootsy Collins, who he'd acquired from James Brown, um, he had his own act, too. He was the opening act for the Parliament Funkadon thing. Yeah, Bootsy's rubber band, but it takes a while to click, and, and at first, let's hear, actually, I want to hear Super Stupid by Funkadelic, which 
This is a song that still scratches my head. Why this wasn't accepted on FM Rock Radio, I do not know. It was a staple for all the grunge bands in the 90s. This is Funkadelic, super stupid. super stupid with a monumentally heavy riff clinton had put together a killer band with the guitarist virtuoso eddie hazel thinking that he could break into the psychedelic rock market but it ends up that historically black colleges were his base yeah and that 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 really worked um you know black college students were like white college students they they like psychedelic music too it's just that because of this fm radio segregation it um it wasn't marketed to them and so they didn't get to see it that much george put this this crazy band on the road and um found he'd had some amazing success i mean places like washington dc they were gigantic Uh, he even made an album specifically for washington dc called chocolate city which was his nickname for the band, for the uh, the city and the many colleges that they played there. And meanwhile, we mentioned Sly Stone earlier, but he does finally break through. Epic Records takes a while, but by the time of their second album, they get a hit single. By the time of their third album, Stand, and their performance at Woodstock, and it's less the performance at Woodstock than it is their performance in the movie of Woodstock, which comes out a year later, that helps them really break through with a really exciting, inspiring vision of an integrated band doing a combination of cutting-edge funk with white pop elements, and it's it's a male-female band as well as a black-white band. Tell right. us a little about how Sly he, clicked. He had the perfect formula, you know. It's just that uh, he he didn't have George Clinton's vision of, of breaking it up and and uh, putting it into, into performance modules, if you if you will. That uh, that didn't work for him. So it was just Sly and the family stone. Plus, Sly was not a very um, dependable guy. He uh, often didn't show up for his own gigs and stuff. By the time he got going, it was over. And and, and he puts out an album, There's a Riot going on, which is sort of a slap in the face to everything that he'd been about up to that point. Yeah, I still don't understand why people were so enthusiastic about it, but they were it's it's i don't know it to me it holds up it was just a foundation stone for me growing up when i learned about uh funk and r&b of that period but it's definitely a huge change uh from what he had done before and meanwhile other black artists are doing even more left field things and and a guy that hasn't been a part of our story but he has been a big part of the music scene comes in with a whole new angle on rock and i'm talking about jazz great miles davis yeah, Davis had, had this famous interview where he said that if you want to really make great music, you need to have white guys and black guys in the band, you know, because the the tension between their musical um, conceptions 
often made for friction that that worked in the in the the final run. You know, he he always you know he had he had Bill Evans in his in his um, band when he cut uh, kind um, yeah kind of blue. Yeah, but uh, he he really thought that electric instruments had a place in in jazz, which was not very widely held by anyone except uh, jazz rock fusion guys who were mostly British. Although he had British people, he had Dave Holland and he had uh, John McLaughlin in his band for a while. He's had other visions of how to make make music in the studio because he would go in and jam and then he and Teo Macero, his producer, would sit down and cut the tape into little pieces and glue them back together in the in the way Miles and Teo heard it. And and it yeah, it creates a a, a whole new sound and, and albums like In a Silent Way and Bitches Brew, they don't make a massive impact on the rock market, but they do go gold and, and Miles starts playing the Fillmore and has an outsized impact, I would say, on rock music. Yeah, well, he had an outsized impact on on jazz. There was a lot of um, a lot of black artists like Stanley Clark and um, uh, uh, that drummer uh, Tony Williams. Who, no, well, Tony Williams, um, but also I can't remember his name. Anyway, he um, you know, and these people started having hits. Uh, on R and B stations, if they if they could come up with a vocal, I'll be your starship. Who is that guy? So Wayne Henderson, and Michael Henderson, and Norman Connors. Right. Yeah. See, those are our um, Miles Davis veterans from Miles's band, and um, the uh, I mean that Starship record was was a huge hit. It was inescapable on black radio. When it came out, and and yet these people were hyped as uh, as jazz artists. I I just remember Billy Cobham. Was ah, yeah. I was looking. You know, all these people started having good record sales, although not a lot of radio play. Jazz radio stations tended to avoid them, and there was also a kind of Afrocentricity going on in the in the jazz world where um, acoustic instruments were being played, but more of a, a rhythm and blues, rhythmic feel to uh, the music. So jazz was in kind of turmoil at that point, and Miles was, well, he was just sitting back and enjoying the, enjoying the show. <laughs> As it were. And the one last titan I want to get to, James Brown. He's a... Uh... Fires his whole band and brings in a new crew. You referenced him earlier. Bootsy Collins and his brother Catfish come in, form a new band for James called the JBs, and basically codify funk for the ages. Well, yeah, they um, they finally figured out exactly what James was was thinking and acted on it, and James was happy to you know be in front of it. So we got a lot of good records out of it and a lot of hits and some stupendous performances. And and he breaks with his white pop audience. Like, uh, I think it was earlier chapter, you said something like 50% of his audience at, at shows in 66, 67 would be white. But after I'm Black and I'm Proud, he never has another pop hit again. 
and he loses a lot of that white audience, but makes up for it with a recommitment to the black audience. Yeah, I mean, black and proud was that was a scary concept to white rock fans. Um, they weren't willing to share much of the uh, spotlight with black people, and for somebody who was perceived as a militant, as James Brown was, that was, things really couldn't handle it, so that was it for him. But he didn't really have to worry. He was making a lot of money on the road, and he was also selling very well to uh, black audiences. And that's it for this episode. Next next week we'll be back and we'll talk about what's going on on the other side of the FM radio divide with bands like Led Zeppelin and we'll dive deep into the Beatles versus Stones dynamic. So that'll be next time and let it roll with Ed Ward. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Next week, Ed Ward will be back to talk about the splits between AM and FM, hard rock and soft rock, and John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock is published by Flatiron Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. And now another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive. Marcus, what happened? I was changing my oil and I spilled some on the floor. Oh, we'll use these $50 bills to wipe it up. Perfect. Got any more? Yeah, yeah, take a couple hundred. Stop. Instead of using money, use an old rag. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary.